it is pretty remarkable when you think about how products get from where they're produced to you and I as consumers. Um, and so it's just really a reflection of the sophistication and depth of the industrial economy. But because most of us grew up at a time when all of those things were either in place or being built, most of our sort of modern life is doesn't know about how things are shipped or how they're assembled and sourced. And so uh, to someone that, you know, was, if you take someone that lived 200 years ago and you put them into our modern society or even say 50 years ago, they wouldn't recognize it. They wouldn't understand it. And, and yet we take it for granted. Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon, the investing show with a buzz. Sit back, relax, let's take the edge off, grab a nice glass of bourbon, and enjoy. Cheers from your host, James Vermillion. But first, let me kindly remind you, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. I'm your host, James Vermillion, founder of Vermillion Private Wealth, and I'm happy to deliver today on one of the most requested topics of the last six months. Logistics is not typically seen as a dynamic or exciting topic, but I can't remember a time when more people were interested in understanding what is happening with global supply chains. And my guest today provides a peek behind the curtain and make some predictions about what the near-term future might hold. Craig Fuller is the founder and CEO of FreightWaves, the leading provider of global supply chain market intelligence and news. Prior to FreightWaves, Craig was the founder of TransCard, a major provider of fleet fuel and debit cards. He's also the CEO of Flying Magazine, the world's most widely read aviation magazine. He also previously founded the Express Direct division of U.S. Express, the leading provider of on-demand expedited truckload services. He holds a BBA from Baylor University, and he's a private pilot. He lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee with his wife and five kids. And I know you're going to enjoy this conversation that is educational, wide-ranging, and touches on a lot of the things happening in the wild world of global logistics. Craig, welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, Happy to be here. Well, I'll tell you, I've had more requests to talk about supply chain issues as people, uh, you know, didn't get their couches for for six months or a year or, or you know, seeing shelves not nearly as full as, as they're used to and, and just a lot going on in that space. I'm sure you're having a, a very busy time right now with all that's going on. But um, as I looked around to try to, to get somebody to come on the show and, and provide maybe a peek behind the curtains um, and a little bit more information uh, and and just expertise about supply chains and how things get to to point A from point A to to B, um, because I think for most most of us it's magic. You know, we we order something and it shows up, or we go to the store and we want something, and and there it is on the shelf. And we're experiencing for the first time in in my adult life, anyways, that that's not as much the case as it usually is. So I'm really excited to talk to you, and you've got a, a very 
you know, broad and, and deep background in the kind of logistics space with, with your background. So I'm excited and, and really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, I'm no, happy to be here. It is pretty remarkable when you think about how products get from where they're produced to you and I as consumers. Um, and so it's just really a reflection of the sophistication and depth of the industrial economy. But because most of us grew up at a time when all of those things were either in place or being built, most of our sort of modern life is doesn't know about how things are shipped or how they're assembled and sourced. And so uh, to someone that, you know, was, if you take someone that lived 200 years ago and you put them into our modern society or even say 50 years ago, they wouldn't recognize it. They wouldn't understand it. And, and yet we take it for granted. Absolutely. And I think it's been fascinating, uh, maybe not for, for good reasons, but it's been fascinating to see people actually start to have to ask some of those questions, you know, like how, how does this normally happen? Why isn't this happening? Where are these disruptions coming from? And I think it's just, it's really piqued a lot of interest into logistics. It's, and, and, and people want to understand, I think now, sometimes it takes a crisis, right? For people to step back and say, what, what's really going on? Or what, what have I been missing for the past 25 years that, and not understanding? So I, I'd like to just start kind of high level um, with you. And this is one I've heard really for the last, I would say, five or six years. And, and that is like this, this, there's this trucker shortage, right? And everyone's worried because the trucking population, um, what, you know, is aging and there, there aren't enough young drivers coming on and there aren't as many trucking companies coming up. And, and I just like to get your take on that narrative. If that's still the case, if that's changed and kind of where you see that, um, right now. So the trucker shortage or driver shortage is a lie. So it never existed. It, it has been something that has been propagated over and over again. And a little bit of context, why I say that is that there are times when you will have capacity shortages in the industry. And there are times when you'll have a capacity glut. But the, the idea that you have a driver shortage that is indefinite and is continuing without ever being addressed is really propagated by a lot of the sort of powers that want to encourage federal government spending and investment in programs to recruit drivers, not necessarily because the industry needs it, but because that helps sort of absorb a lot of the cost of sort of onboarding. So let's take a step back to what we're talking about here. So effectively, when you or I are buying services or, or products that uh, we consume is those products are shipped. And a large portion of those products that are shipped are, are actually a large percent of the miles that they take or the, uh, the amount of money spent to ship those items actually involve trucks. And those trucks, because they're not autonomous, require human drivers. And so basically what you have is in order to have a a truck that is available to be dispatched, you have to have a driver to go along with it. So really, when we think about um, what's happening in the industry is on any given day, there's an amount of capacity that's out there. We call dispatchable capacity. So it's truck drivers and trucks. You have to have both. You have to have the equipment and then you have to have the human driver. And they have a certain amount of hours allocated per day. And so when they exhaust those hours and there aren't enough hours to drive as an industry, then we can be said that we're short of dispatchable uh, trucks is what we would typically refer to it as. Um, if we have a situation where we have so 
uh, many dispatchable trucks. We, in other words, we have far more trucks and drivers in the in the market. We have so much more capacity, dispatchable capacity, than you could say we have a glut. But if we sort of back up for the last couple of years, is what's happened is if you sort of go back to pre-COVID levels, we actually in 2019 had a capacity glut. And what that means is that we had too much dispatchable capacity in the trucking industry versus the amount of freight that was moving. Because in order to have, if you think about what, what trucking companies do is they haul goods from distribution centers, from warehouses, from manufacturing. And there's a finite amount of demand at any moment in time. There's a finite amount of capacity at any moment in time. And those have to be in balance in order for the market to be in balance. Reality is it's never in balance. So you're going to have a glut. And you can have a or you can have a shortage. So when we, we talk about what happened in 2019, is we had a capacity glut, which caused what we have turned as a bloodbath. It caused a lot of bankruptcies in trucking companies. And so those trucking companies went out of business. And so the industry lost trucking companies. Then in during COVID and really sort of the, the last two years that we've known it, we've had the opposite. We've had a capacity shortage. And so what that means is there hasn't been enough capacity to handle all of the physical goods that we've all bought and consumed and continue to consume. And basically, that's why freight rates have been skyrocketing, because there hasn't been enough capacity in the market. But something has been happening at the very same time, is the number of new trucking fleets to enter the industry has never been higher. So we look at the fact that we've added in the last 18 months, 20,000 new dispatchable trucking companies into our industry that have represented 170,000 trucks that are available for dispatch. So what's happened is we have added so much capacity, but because there's also been so much demand is physical goods consumption or freight has been up 24% in the same period of time. So for us, we're like, oh, it's this driver shortage that's causing all these issues. But the reality is it wasn't the driver shortage that was causing the issues. It was that there was so much demand out there versus the total amount of trucks. So what we end up in this situation is for this massive expansion of the tr- total number of trucking companies and total number of trucks, and we had this massive uh, boom cycle that's created so much freight. Well, now we're at the end of that boom cycle. And that boom cycle, since really the first week of March, We've seen basically what some would describe as a correction. Um, we've gone a little bit further to call a freight recession as we think that the uh, situation in the market is a bit more dire than, than just calling it a general correction. Um, and that's just because the market's not performing the way it would normally perform. If it was just a correction, it's actually looked to be much worse than that. And so when we look at what's happening, you've had this massive expansion of capacity and you've had this massive sort of downturn of the market, and the market's still expanding capacity, and this downturns continue to happen. So now we're going to end up in a situation where we have a capacity glut, and we have a, a slowing freight market and a lack of demand. Well, that's going to be really catastrophic for a lot of trucking companies because now they've lost all pricing power, and because the market is going to balance, is going to look at whether there's there's enough demand to, to match the supply or not enough demand and there's too much supply, anyone that studies basic economics would know 
too much excess of something means you lose pricing power and not enough of something means you have pricing power. We're about to see what that looks like for a lot of these small trucking companies. No, that, that was a, a, an excellent summary of, I think, what's been happening. And the economy in the United States is typically, you know, 60% service oriented and 40% goods driven. Um, of course, during COVID, when people were staying at home, working from home, fixing up their backyards because there was nowhere else to go, all of those things, we, that flipped. We became a, you know, over 60% goods oriented economy. People couldn't go to restaurants, couldn't travel, all of those things. So the service sector, you know, collapsed in a lot of ways. So, yeah, I mean, you you had all this demand coming on to get all those goods that people were suddenly spending their money on that was typically going to to services before that. And and so, yeah, it makes sense to me that you're going to have then at that point with that demand, prices are going to go up for trucking. Prices go up. It's more advantageous for somebody to open a trucking company because prices are high. So everyone starts doing that. And then we're seeing now the unwind um, as people shift back into the service kind of sector. Um, when it comes to spending. And now you've got these trucking companies that have been built up this capacity. And so I guess what you're alluding to when you say, you know, when you when you call it a a recession is you're, you're basically saying that that unwind is going to happen. It's happening now. And um, some of that capacity ultimately is is going to go away because, it, you know, you're, it's not going to be profitable. Is that am I? Yeah, I don't I, think I'm alluding to it. I'm saying it flat out is essentially what we're having is a situation where this you've had this massive bubble like you have in a lot of markets that's encouraged a lot of new trucking companies to join the market. They've been seeing these rates. You think about it from a truck driver is really anybody can go start a trucking company. If you have, even if you don't have credit, you have a commercial driver's license, which can take a couple of weeks to get trained. You go out and start a trucking company and there's three and a half million truck drivers or registered CDLs in the United States. There's a lot of people that can actually do this and getting financing is really easy to go out and get a truck truck loan. And so essentially what happens is that it's become such an attractive market for someone to make three hundred dollars to $400,000 a year. And because they don't have a perspective of what happens in the market and oftentimes may not have the experience to know what a downturn looks like, they assume that $300,000 is going to stay with them. And I know this is a, a show that's involved in Wall Street. This is no different than the trading activity. Is somebody that made money in t- last year in the stock market thought they were a genius because it was so easy to make money. They probably don't feel that way right now. The problem is they've lost a lot of money on, along the way. The difference between the stock market and the trucking market is I can just pull my chips out of the market and I just write off my losses. What we're talking about are small business owners that have gone out and taken out physical debt against this truck. So they've actually have got a line of credit against this truck and they finance this truck their business is either going to have to get out early enough before truck tr- prices collapse or end up uh, suffering bankruptcy. And what oftentimes is they, they sort of live off this cash flow until they can't. And then they sort of basically will stop paying their truck payments, stop paying their employees. And then we all know what happens. And so that's, that's a concern. And in a normal market, what you would see is this sort of uh, – uh, element where you have too much capacity. We've seen this before in trucking. We have, you know, market tightens up, rates go up. A lot of trucking uh, uh, companies start up in the industry. The economy slows down just enough. The bubble sort of lets out and bursts. Everybody's happy. We're not happy, the ones that aren't suffering. But that's the cycle. Right, right. Spectrum sure. is predictable. Let me throw something else out that's happening right now as we speak. 
is diesel prices are up a dollar eighty-five a gallon with no end in sight. So we've seen since really the start of the year an acceleration of diesel prices by about sixty percent. And 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 just to put that in perspective, diesel is the number one variable cost for trucking companies. So. You know, they joined the industry, they went out and bought this truck, and they entered 2022 incredibly bullish, as they should be. Rates are really high, demand is really high, they, no shortage of opportunities, and they're doing really well, making a lot of money. What we saw that happened is the market slowed down just enough to sort of let out a little bit of that air, and spot trucking rates started to really fall. So they went from, say, 360 a mile to 340, 330. And then something happened where we saw a massive cutback in volume at the same time. So Russia gets attacked, diesel prices shoot up, demand, I'm sorry, Russia attacks Ukraine. I apologize. Right. They're not right. getting attacked, they're doing the attacking. All of a sudden, diesel prices uh, start to shoot up. And now they're in a situation where the, the accelerants, the speed at which the market's changing, is much quicker. Less loads, less rate, accelerating diesel. And we're in, in many ways, for some of these small trucking companies, a death spiral that will be, will, will be quite ugly and, and uh, deadly for a lot of these trucking companies in terms of, of their business. And it's unfortunate. They have heard the same headlines that you, you, you discussed was this driver shortage. And they assumed, hey, if there's a driver shortage, that means there's a lot of opportunity. And what they don't understand what that means is the American trucking industry and the trucking companies, what they're looking for are employees of trucking companies. So they want you and I or you know whoever to join their trucking company and make $100,000 a year as a truck driver employee. Right. But they are ignoring all of these small businesses, the 20 some odd thousand small businesses I talked about that represent hundreds, you know, $100,000, 100,000 trucks plus. They ignore all of those folks and act like they don't exist. So the ATA's numbers is that we're 80,000 drivers short in the trucking industry. But yet we've added 170,000 in two years at the tightest labor market in history. How does that compute? It doesn't compute. So what we've done is we've set up a lot of these entrepreneurs that don't know any better. And maybe they're, you know, maybe at worst they're greedy and they're foolish. And we know what happens in markets is that pigs get slaughtered. And maybe that's what happened. But maybe they're not. Maybe these are small uh, uh, business owners or aspiring business owners that want to take advantage of the American dream. And are just doing what you and I would do is want to follow their dreams and start a small business. And trucking is a an attractive small business. And maybe they believe this whole narrative about a driver shortage is going to stay with us indefinitely. So they go out and start it, and they're going to be victims of uh, a lot of what's happening right now. Now, my gut feel is much more of them are, are the latter than the former. Although uh, I suspect you're right, there there are certainly probably some some greedy folks out there who wanted to hop in because, but, but I, I agree. I think it was, if, it's people wanting, if, to, wanting to do, do something and, and start a business and provide for their family and, you know, do all of those things that really everyone's trying to do. So um, it is it unfortunate. Makes sense. I mean, if you think about like driving a truck is hard work, it's laborious. It's, yeah. it's not great on health. It's, you know, it's taxing on your body, physical, mentally taxing. It's very isolating. Just being in a truck for three weeks at a time. It's, it's not the greatest 
uh, sort of lifestyle. But if you tell somebody who perhaps is working at a, uh, you know, an Amazon distribution center or perhaps driving a UPS truck or maybe worked in an oil field that they could make $300,000 a year, they're likely to do that. That's a yeah. great way to get out of this sort of, you know, living by cha- paycheck to paycheck. The challenge is that it, it isn't, it wasn't like this was going to last forever. So I, I don't blame the people that went out and made the decisions. I blamed a lot of the narrative that happened to the industry about this quote unquote driver shortage. Cause it didn't necessarily help a lot of these drivers cause they didn't understand how much capacity was being added. Yeah. Agreed. I, I, I'm glad you provided that context because I'm telling you, I've heard that literally a thousand times over the last really decade. But, um, what, what I'm hearing from you is, is you've got expenses now rising and you've got revenue now falling, um, for these drivers. And that's not the arithmetic in any business that you want to come face to face with. That's exactly right. So you have this declining revenue and this accelerating cost structure. And it's not just diesel fuel. I mean, if you employed a truck driver, let's say you weren't an owner operator and uh, you know a, a large percent of the industry is actually small fleets, but it may be three to four drivers. It may be a brother, maybe a friend. It may just be someone that you know that you've hired. They're under six trucks. There's still a lot of employees out there. And the employee costs are going up because that driver who's working for you is reading you know, headlines of Walmart paying $110,000. And they say, I'm the guy at Walmart's making 110 and I took on 75, which is actually really good pay. The guy, I can go get a Walmart job making 110,000. Why wouldn't I do that? Quality of life's better. I run the same routes. Walmart has really great benefits. I don't have this irregular route problem. Walmart is sort of the dream job for a lot of truck drivers. And if they're having a shortage, then why don't I go work for them? And so a lot of trucking companies have had to pay up. And it's not as if the labor market's gotten much better. So we're seeing accelerating driver wages, accelerating fuel costs, and we've seen accelerating equipment costs. And we haven't even talked about the Federal Reserve. One of the things about trucking companies, very much like any kind of asset-based business, is it requires debt. And it's not like the debt that you and I go out and get when we get our car. Maybe you can finance a truck that way. But a lot of times it's working capital that I have to actually finance. And that working capital, in order to build my business, is indexed to the Fed, essentially some either prime or or prime plus or some instrument that's set by the Federal Reserve. And we've seen what interest rates have done over the past, you know, four months. And we know that interest rates are accelerating. Well, that's just one more death spiral that the drivers, these trucking companies have to contend with. Yeah, I mean, it really is hitting from from all sides, it seems like at the moment. Um, And and speaking of that, I'd like to transition just a little bit. Um, Another thing that obviously is still in the news is COVID. And in particular, one thing I'm curious to get your thoughts on is what's happening in China. And I don't remember if you posted this or, or I saw it somewhere else, but China has seven out of the world's 10 busiest container ports. So we're seeing massive lockdowns. Shanghai was kind of the first um, big city. They're spreading, uh, you know, uh, uh, those those efforts for Xi's COVID zero policy, if you will. Um, that's obviously having. You can look at the maps of of the the uh, vessels out on out on the water, waiting to port or or, or you know stuck or whatever. Um, where, what do you see there, and what impact do you think that has either on on the U.S. broader economy? And, and or the trucking market eventually. 
Yeah, it's it is insane. I mean, you we were two and a half years into this COVID thing for China. If you think about the Chinese yeah. perspective, yeah, uh, we're two years into it in terms of the West sort of contending with this, and we sort of learned to live with it. Like COVID is just something that we've all accepted as sort of going to be like the flu, the chicken pox. It's sort of like a thing that just lives with us that we just have to sort of tolerate. And we all recognize that at some point we're likely to get sick. We may be vaccinated, may have gotten triple vaccinated, but there's great treatment. And as a society, it it feels very sort of weird and strange to be shutting down your economy to, to do this. So we know this is happening. Um, as, as you discussed, you know, at least 50% of the Chinese economy is currently in some kind of lockdown and it's the most important city so it's yeah. shanghai which is the equivalent to new york city it is uh guangzhou which is the third largest city in china but it's really the manufacturing hub of china so it's where a lot of the auto parts and electronics come from it's a very important manufacturing center uh and it has the fourth largest port in the world so shanghai has the largest port in the world guangzhou has the fourth largest port in the world and then recently there's been reports of beijing yeah. the capital so think about what beijing is you know guangzhou is sort of the detroit of 1950 like if you think of the old you know uh motown type type yeah, environment yeah. where the manufacturing is sort of there that's what guangzhou would have had been if we were sort of kids in the 50s the the beijing is sort of their equivalent of washington dc but what they have is this instrument of zero tolerance for covid which means they will shutter their entire economy until and and really basically jail and prison their own people. And I don't mean in prisons, but in their own homes, they will barricade them until they sort of get control of, of COVID and stop the spread. And if anyone that's, you know, has paid attention to what's happened with COVID uh, in the last, particularly the last six months with Omicron and, and how pervasively, uh, uh, you know, that became as part of society and how easy it was to spread. We all know that it's almost impossible to sort of shut it down. And so, in the West, we're, we're living with this and China's not. Well, here's the problem. If they've shut down at least 50% of their GDP, the GDP that China sort of performs on a global level is far more important to the world than if the United States shut down 50% of our GDP. Now, our financial markets would be in dire straits if we shut down half our economy. But what we're talking about in China is they've shut down half of their economy and the vast majority of their economy is tied to some form of manufacturing or production. And by shutting that down, what they've actually done is they are starving global markets, global consumers of goods in addition to shutting down their cities and stopping the spread. Because manufacturing is so important to the Chinese economy and China is so important to the world, we can only watch this in sort of shock and dismay because we know that at some point, that as China has turned off its manufacturing, that a lot of businesses that depend on Chinese components, raw materials that move through uh, uh, China, maybe they're assembled into something that then is moved on to another supply chain and then assembled, or just manufacturing goes go, go into retail. We know because we're not receiving those items or won't be receiving those items, 
that we know it's going to have a pretty dire impact. And I, I don't think anyone would be shocked to, to know what supply chains can do when there's out a product that's lived for the past two years. And that's what we're looking at. And so if you look at the shutdown really sort of April 6th, they shut down on April 3rd in Shanghai, and then April 6th is when we started to see sort of port volume start to drop. Well, they've dropped about uh, 20 some odd percent uh, since then, and they have another 37% to drop from today on. And so we could see by the end of May is really half of the products that leave China, the volumes of products that leave China that we saw prior to this crisis would be about half of what it was before. And that means that U.S. businesses and consumers will be looking at sometime in June or July is starting to notice things are missing in stores that they would normally expect to get their hands on. So the part from an American consumer standpoint, really the first event, if you will, where you will notice this is likely back to school. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you think about sort of the cycle that happens is everybody goes and, you know, your parents go out. Maybe if you're in college, you go out and sort of buy your new wardrobe for the fall season. You get your dorm sort of decorated and you're buying your computers and furniture. And if you're in elementary or high school, maybe it's things like, you know, pencils and, and, you know, your trapper keepers. At least that's what I had when I was a kid. <laughs> oh yeah. And do you remember those? Oh yeah. Yeah. Trapper I remember keepers. the trapper They were like yeah. the thing, right? They were so, the thing. Like it was jams and trapper keepers, a kid of the eighties. That was like what you I, were. I might start showing up to meetings uh, with a trapper keeper from now on. They're cool, man. <laughs> I found like in an old, garage i found an old trapper it was like a star wars trapper keeper and then i think i think i had like a ferrari one or something it was like oh, a hot like a miami vice like fluorescent uh a car uh that was the so, day of like the car posters and stuff so yeah so that you just makes put sense. it in there and you could take it out you could put it in a new poster and it was like it was the equivalent yeah. of like your screen on your phone it was cool love that so anyways those items that normally would expect particularly the lower end items will, will probably be in short supply come this uh back to school season. And that's when Americans will start to notice it. And so we're seeing the manufacturing economy shut down uh, in China. And I think it's it's sort of surreal because there's not much we can do about it. Yeah. It, you used the word shock earlier. I, I, it is shocking. I mean, it seems from at least my perspective, and I would suspect most people uh, that, that I know and talk to, it seems nonsensical in a lot of ways and like unfathomable to, to make that decision at this point in the, in this cycle. But uh, yeah, you're, you're right. We, we're just going to have to sit back and watch it. You know, if you're listening to this, go do your, your uh, back to school shopping now because uh, back to school. you, you and might, you might, might not look, be able to get those things. There are people that I respect in geopolitical circles that sort of live the intersection of supply chain and, ge- and geopolitics. So if you think of like supply chains, most people if you sort of go back to where we were two years ago, it was a largely a, in the in the minds of most people, a really boring niche. Like I would when I Freightways, Freightways has been around for five years, and people would say, Wait, you run a media business that covers supply chains? Like they're like Not sexy. They would, their eyes would glaze over or they would say, Well, how do you possibly write about that every day? And I'm like, Well, we have 40 full-time journalists that write about this every day. What they didn't know that I knew and our industry knew is that supply chains are constantly fluid and, and subject to disruption. It's just that we had so much excess in the supply chains. The economies have sort of built this sort of buffer stock that worked. Well, we effectively turned out the lights. 
back in uh, March of 2020 as the United States and as the West. And China had done that in November of 19. And we're now just playing catch up. And it feels like, hey, we're out of the woods. And then she, for whatever reason, I mean, President Xi of China says, I'm going to continue to maintain my zero lockdown. And it sort of creates this effect that we're unclear in the West on why that's happening. A lot of theories, but yeah. it um, it does seem to be pretty pretty drastic and somewhat uh, can be pretty impactful. Yeah, I agree. It is it is baffling, but I I want to try to find a little bit of a silver lining here because you know one thing I've noticed just you know when when bad things happen or when volatility happens or when just weird events happen usually some things change and, and and sometimes it's things that maybe needed to change and we didn't recognize. And then something happens, some catalyst comes along and everyone opens their eyes and says, Hey, yeah, we probably shouldn't have been in that situation to begin with. But at the time there was no reason not to be. Um, is there anything, one thing that comes to mind, for example, is everyone has been really hell bent on kind of a just in time inventory system. I mean, it's good for the books. It's good for the balance sheet. Um, everything, when everything's moving great, I mean, obviously that's, that's the way to go because, you know, you don't have to have the the capital tied up in inventory. Everything arrives right when you need it and everything's smooth and, and you're good to go. How, however, when something happened, when a cog stops and, and things get jammed up for whatever reason, um, you know, now you don't have that inventory built up to be able to continue production or whatever it is selling, um, to get through that that period of of um, you know stucks you know resources, that's just one example I can think of. Do you see anything changing like fundamentally in, in the supply chain world as a result of what we've gone through in the last couple of years, or do you think it'll just go kind of back to normal once everything you know shuffles out and and we move on? So we're not going back to normal. We have to stop sort of looking at what normal means. Is the world has changed and it's really. COVID, Russia, China's sort of realization of A, how dependent they are on the West, but also how much they resent all of that and this sort of assertion of power. We sort of have the energy crisis that's playing out right in front of our eyes in terms of domestic and global energy supplies. And then you have the supply chain crisis. And and then you have this Federal Reserve balance sheet that's having to be pulled in. There's so many things that have completely broken all the historical models that we all thought, because we sort of lived these charmed lives in America, the America of of 2020 was quite charmed for like most of my life. I was born in 1979. I didn't know global war. We had skirmishes. There was terrorist attacks and things. But like generally life was better across the globe. Yeah, pretty stable. Yeah. Pretty stable, right? And then all of a sudden you have a lot of destabling factors that have taken place. So we're not going back to the way things were. And I think we have got to sort of accept that as Americans because it's hard for us to believe that's the case. The world's going to be a little bit more uncomfortable in the future. And what that means in terms of supply chains is it means that companies and decision makers need to have buffer stock. As you mentioned, it's a cost of capital to do that. It's bad for the balance sheet. But the reality is if you don't have buffer stock, if you don't have inventory, available when customers demand it, you will see demand destruction. You will lose those cells or you will see havoc played into your business. So let's take two different products. 
retail goods, and let's look at a, a retailer like Bed Bath & Beyond had a really, really rough past two years. And the reason they had a rough past two years is Bed Bath & Beyond, let's think about what it's about. It's about, about the bed and it's about the bathroom. I mean, they're essentially a home products company that's for women. Like women. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 my wife, at least, it's the master bedroom. It's the bedding and it, it's the master bed uh, bathroom and it's what goes in the towel. We have towels upon towels and I can't use those <laughs> towels. And like, I'm always getting like yelled at for using the wrong towel, but it's, like, it's on the wall. Like, what did you, these pillows, like what is up with that? But that was their business. And what they had done so all of a sudden, when consumers left city apartments and sort of went out and sort of desired to live in bigger homes, and we've seen that with the housing uh, situation, is that whether it's a first home or second home, they tended – generally, people moved into bigger properties, expanded the amount of footprint that they owned. And and so what that created was a lot of demand on Bad Bath & Beyond's business they couldn't forecast. And so what they ended up doing was all of their inventory drained. They were sourcing from places like China. And then that inventory uh, got really soaked up. And then they started to run out of inventory and they started to miss, significantly miss their numbers, not because of lack of demand, but simply because lack of inventory. So they've learned the lesson. Their stock got punished. And then you see a company like Target that did exceptionally well because it happened to have a lot of bumper stock and offer variety of items. And because they tend to be a little higher quality, they tended to have multiple source providers. They weren't going for the cheaper Right, cheapest provider, and they had a lot of power. The other thing you sort of have to can't underestimate is Home Depot and Walmart and Target and Amazon have an enormous amount of power over the suppliers. Whereas a Bed Bath and Beyond is a much more niche sort of vendor. It doesn't have as much power as say a Target or Walmart, and so because of that, they ran out. So now, if you're the decision maker at Bed Bath and Beyond, looking in the, in the future, you're thinking, how do I create multiple suppliers so I'm not dependent upon one country or one company, one region of the world. So maybe if I'm Bed and Bath Beyond and I've been sourcing in China, I'm looking at places like Vietnam, I'm looking at Malaysia, I'm looking at Indonesia, perhaps I'm considering parts of Africa for sourcing. And perhaps I should be looking, if I'm not already, at North America, Mexico specifically, uh, about sourcing items. So I think we're going to see some nearshoring come back to our shores. We're going to see products assembled and manufactured locally and locally being Mexico and Latin America, not you know, not as much in the United States for some of these lower-end goods. But I think we're going to see right. that. We're also going to see more inventory being kept on stock than we had in the past, which means companies, retailers in particular, have to refigure, have to order sooner. They have to have technology to manage inventory levels and monitor those. They need to know where products are flowing. So we're seeing a lot of investment in logistics technology. Um, and then it means that I need to have a diverse manufacturing base. Well, that's that's the goods. That's the stuff that's relatively easy to solve. Like these retail inventory problems, when you're talking about manufacturing good, if you're getting them in China and you're, you're talking about bedding or pillows, you can go to Bangladesh or Vietnam and get probably the same products at it around the same price. Mm-hmm. China is no longer the cheapest place to manufacture. This is what people are shocked by is right. something like the cost of a symbol or produce an item in the past 20 years has gone up like 18 X. I mean, it's China is no longer in terms of labor cost. It's actually more expensive to, to manufacture something in China than it is in Mexico. 
And yeah, I mean, that's what happens when the middle class grows. I mean, people aren't going to work for for those wages anymore. They have they have options. So so that's yeah, right. So we've seen this sort of change of how businesses, particularly in retail, have to respond. We have another problem though that is actually far more concerning to me in supply chains, which is raw commodities. So oil and energy, in particular, it's copper, it's lumber, it's all these commodities that we require to be put into our products so that the rest of the economy can operate properly. And that, unfortunately, is far more concerning than any of the manufactured containerized goods that come out of China. And there is this, the reason that this concerns me a lot is that we're talking about life and death for some of this. So we're talking about energy supplies with what happens in Russia uh, and what Russia has done, and the fact that China is now, you know, is one of the world's largest in, in is the world's largest in energy importer, competing for supply. We're seeing all of the other commodities, whether it's copper, lithium ion, lumber, all of those have had excess supplies, and some of them are incredibly difficult to to be able to source. And then we also have this ESG element that's been playing out for the past couple of years. And look, I am a, I, I'm a, an environmentalist at heart. And I believe that, you know, you want to, you want to move towards more efficient technology. You want to remove your carbon emissions. You want environmental responsibility. But I also believe in, and recognize that hydrocarbons are the most efficient way to deliver energy. And yet we have had in the United States and really more so in Europe, we've had this desire not to build refinery plants or even pipelines that enabled energy to flow because they were sort of, there was a belief that if you sort of cut off that infrastructure and refinement, that we would all of a sudden sort of shift to this sort of green economy. The reality is that that transition probably will at some point happen but there simply isn't enough technology or development of green technologies to take us completely out of fossil fuels. And so now you have these shocks that are happening with Russia uh, shocking the world and basically Europe trying to figure out how to disentangle its economy away from Russia and particularly in energy. At the same time, China is trying to drain the uh, economy. And then the United States was a finite amount of refinery capacity doesn't have the ability to provide diesel, jet fuel, and gasoline to American consumers at the levels of demands they have. And that's the part that's most concerning is that you can't – it's one thing to talk about retail goods, which is what most Americans consider supply chains. What you have to actually look at is these raw materials, whether it's energy or food and other types of metals and products that we need. What are we going to do about those? How are we going to build all these batteries for these electric vehicles that we have? Those are questions that we've never had to ask ourselves. But unless we're going to do business with people like Putin, which is one of the world's largest commodity producers, then we have to ask ourselves, hey, maybe the desire to move off of hydrocarbons and move towards electric vehicles is great in theory. But unless we want to do business with Putin and source lithium ion and, and all these things or pay exorbitant cost for all these items, maybe we should sort of accept that reality is going to take us a little bit longer than so we aspire. No, I, I agree with most of that. I mean, I'm I, I'm with you on the green energy thing. Like I, 
you know, I, I drive a Tesla. I love it. I'm a, I'm a fanboy, no, no question. But I think you're right. There are, there are some challenges that need to be addressed. And anytime you just try to like instantaneously go from one thing to another, you're going to run in, into some issues. And, and the lithium thing is, is one of them. There's some incredible technology being produced on the battery side that contains much less, you know, rare earth minerals and things like that, metals. But we're not there yet. Um, so it's going to have to be a smooth transition. And what, what I think the danger is when you try to manipulate prices, you get going in a direction sooner than, than should have happened. And now you can't kind of untangle that. So that's what worries me a little bit. Um, and, and I think you're right. That's just that we're going to have to face those, those questions you brought up. No, no doubt. And we're going to have to face them soon. What is yeah, going to, yeah. we're going to have an energy crisis in the United States around gasoline and diesel. And it's going to happen within the next, in this summer, you're going to find shortages of fuel throughout the United States, particularly in the Northeast in the summer. This is not something that's five years out or 10 years out. What are we going to do about that? Right. And so are we going to stop driving? Are we going to shut down airplanes? Are we going to shut down trains? Like these are important things that we as Americans, we can sit there and, and judge she in shutting down his economy, which is egregiously bad. But in America, we have our own problems is we have more. Com- we are blessed by geography in having food supplies that we produce 35 percent more food than we consume. We could have balanced energy supplies in the United States where we could be producing in excess of energy than we do. And, and yet right. we don't have enough energy in the United States to supply all of our needs and supply the rest of the world. So right. here's a choice that we're going to have to make this summer is the reason we're running out of supplies of, of energy is because a lot of those energy supplies are being exported to Europe to help them move off this Russian right. sort of drug, right? It's like, sure. hey, you're a heroin addict, so we're going to give you the, sort of the alternative. And so as we try to shift Europe back towards the United States and away from sort of being held hostage by Putin, it's actually draining what supplies we have in the United States around diesel, jet fuel, and gasoline. So at some point this summer, the administration's going to have to make a choice. And really, we've only been able to export diesel for the last, say, seven to eight years. There was a law passed. I think it was under Trump where we could actually export it. It's going to be a choice made sometime this summer where if President Biden continues to allow exports, then Americans are going to run out of fuel. And I don't think right. that's a political choice that he will make. Alternatively, if he does that, if he shuts down exporting of energy, what's going to happen to Europe and then ultimately what's going to happen to Ukraine? Ukraine is right. going to fall because diesel and energy is what keeps you know Ukraine going. It's also what keeps Europe going. It's going to be a pretty dark uh, set of circumstances that we are now in, and it's all back to supply chain. It's because we yeah. didn't build infrastructure and technologies here in the United States that enabled us to build out these supply chains. We wanted to export and let other countries build these refinery plants. We wanted other countries to be the ones that exploited our oil. We put really stringent requirements on our American producers that enab- enabled them not to be able to absorb these shocks. And I look, I'm all for a carbon future. I have 
my house is off the grid. I built solar. It was an expensive project, but I'm off the grid. <laughs> and, I, and I truly am a carbon neutral, yeah. want to move to net zero as a society. But I'm also a realist. Am I, yeah. gonna, am I yeah. willing to shut down my economy to get there? Now, there are people that will say that's perfectly fine. What they don't realize is you end up resorting to things like coal and burning. Oh, oh absolutely. Like, yeah. The, like, I mean, the biggest a, polluters are the poorest countries in the world for, for a reason. Exactly. Because they don't, it's cheap to burn wood. It's cheap right. to burn. And I, I know this wasn't intended to be a geopolitical conversation. No, no but I mean, these are important topics. Supply chains are geopolitical now. And I think what we're seeing is that the United States is underprepared for a whole new war, world order. And it, the reason is we believe that capitalism, you sort of look at the sort of post-Cold War world is – you sort of went to this world is flat. And I grew up reading Thomas Friedman and being a huge fan of this idea that the world's flat and economies are going to all be there. And that worked out for 30 years, right? Yeah. Like yeah. trading, the Chinese were massive beneficiaries of American hard power, of American military power yeah. and didn't have to do it. They didn't have to pay the taxes, except they produced cheap goods. And as long as they continued to produce cheap goods, and American kept buying these cheap goods, we benefited. China benefited far greater than we did. And some would say the reason that we have a less vibrant middle class and manufacturing sector is because we sent and exported all that to China. Now, as a free trade, fundamentally, I've always believed in free trade. You have to ask yourself, should we be thinking in the future about a freedom trade, which means we're only going to really, really trade with partners that are on a level playing field and treat things like ESG, environmental and social governance, equal to how we do in the West. Yeah. Because if we don't, then the price that we're going to pay is destruction of our climate, empowerment of these horrible dictators, and these egregious sort of societal elements that are even, aren't even good to their own people. And as yeah. dysfunctional as we are in America with our political system, we are far less – I would rather live in America on January 6, 2020, any day than be a resident of Shanghai, China today. It just – I would rather have political instability than an autocratic government that basically has no respect for my human rights. Yep. I, and, and you know, really I think what it comes down to – and I, I liked your freedom trade example. It really comes down to externalities, right? Like who's – did we actually solve some of those problems or did we just push them onto somebody else? And, and that's the question we need to ask. And we need to ask if, if we're serious about those things, how we go about that in the future. And I, I think you're right. I mean, it made us feel good to do certain things and say like, see, we're doing the right thing, but we, were we really, or were we just saying, Hey, you go do this on our behalf and, and we'll benefit no, from it. You'll benefit from it and we'll call it good. Look, I think if you go back to, Someone was in China in 1981, in Shenzhen, China in 1981. I think what we did for to help prop up the Chinese economy and the people that live there, I don't think you can judge that as a negative outcome. I mean, what the United States, this is sort of interesting because, um, you, you know, and I look, I, I'm not a. I'm not one of these like big flag bearing Americans. Like I love America and I love where we live, but I'm not out there. You know, I'm not out with my MAGA hat. Like this sounds like a little, but it, the reality is from a geopolitical standpoint yeah. is we decided that it was okay to allow American prosperity and capitalism spread throughout the world. And it did great and pro pro 
profound things for people in China and Vietnam and Cambodia and even Africa. It's helped to eradicate AIDS. And it's capitalism that's done that. Yeah. Capitalism. It's American capitalism. Yeah, no doubt. But but these dictators are now threatening, have used that power because they've realized how important to be the world's backyard of uncomfortable things in terms of energy production. They have no problem exploiting their natural resources and destroying entire villages if they can sort of exploit to get the copper mined out of it. I mean, lithium ion is a horribly... And cobalt, these you know, slave trade is heavily involved in cobalt. So really horrible things that American and Western societies would never put up with. We're okay buying it from a third party, but we don't want to touch. We don't want to have our hands dirty, and that's just the way the system works. And you can judge it or hate it; it's just the way it works. The reality is now we have these very powerful forces that we don't control in the United States, which are called China and Russia. That have Russia is powerful because they have this massive uh, energy stockpile uh, or energy sources and this massive nuclear stockpile. And China is powerful because it is the world's manufacturing supply chain source. And we, they're no longer operating the way that they should operate in a free market. And so we as Americans have to decide that. And so that's what supply chain uh, professionals are having to contend with right now. Yeah, it's a lot. And, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, I don't think we could have this conversation realistically without getting into the geopolitical stuff. And, and frankly, my initial interest in supply chain and in logistics came when I was in the military, because I, I remember sitting in some of our leadership classes and studying famous battles in which, um, in most of the examples, the victor of these, of these battles was not the one you would have predicted based on military might, resources, money, all of those things. And the bottom line, every single time uh, that happened, when you really looked at the root cause of what went wrong here, why did this outcome happen? It was logistics. Being able, it doesn't matter if you have all the resources in the world, if you can't get them where they need to be, uh, it does you absolutely zero good. So it's it's hugely important Um on the military side, uh, on the economic side. And I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. These are, these are challenging questions, challenging issues. And um, I, I do think we're going to have to answer some questions, but I, I think ultimately longer term, you know, that's what you do. You, you, you come up against challenges and now you got to figure out how do we solve this? What's the best solution? And hopefully we do that in a, in a way in which everybody is, is looking to the future in a, in a good way. Look, as an American, this is we're going to be that we are the best positioned country in the world to handle this problem is we have the best, most powerful military in the world who actually understand supply chain logistics. Like, yes, yes. Logistics core for the U.S. military is renowned. Now, it probably isn't as good as the civilian logistics core, like, frankly, FedEx and UPS and even the the postal service, which we all love to sort of make fun of, but it's really good. They, they get knocked well. so hard. <laughs> they, 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 they do undeservedly. Like some of it's deserved. Some of it is. It's yeah. because it's like you, you go into the postal service. I was in a meeting. Uh, this was 15 years ago and it was a postal service meeting and they invited a bunch of uh, transportation trucking executives to a meeting. And it was with a postal service commissioner. I, I don't even know what the, you know, what role he had, but it, it was a think tank. They invited 20 big trucking executives to this meeting 
And he opens the room and they brought us up because they wanted to understand how to compete against UPS and FedEx. 2003-ish. I can't remember exactly. Mm-hmm. And so we were brought up there. And, and this is when uh, the, G- George W. Bush wanted to sort of uh, uh, change government the way government operated, more like corporations and sort of use the private sector in the way it was meant yeah. to be. Right. So he got up there and he's like, Hey, appreciate you coming up here. And then he goes in his rant about he, how he hates the U S postal service. Like I'm in, he's invited us to be in a meeting <laughs> and he's talking about how much he hates working at the U S postal service. And I'm thinking to myself, if he were for any other corporation in America, he would be out of Done. the room in the next yeah. minute. No, but he's like, I'm quitting here in two months. I absolutely hate it. It's the worst place to work for. It's the worst job, but welcome. I mean, it was it was a pretty remarkable thing. Quite endorsement. But, but the reality is that that I didn't mean to get on this whole rant on the U.S. Postal Service, but like <laughs> it's good at what it does. The private yeah. sector logistics department is as good as any logistics uh, function in the world, and that is something that the free market in America has enabled us. This just in time inventory. This just-in-time logistics and supply chain has enabled us to be really, really well positioned yeah. for what for what the world is shifting to, and we yeah. have resources, and we have oil and energy, and we have we have food. We just have to figure out whether we're willing to allow that production take place in our backyard. And those are questions that we're not ready to handle as a society. Yeah, they're tough ones, no doubt. You mentioned uh, logistics technology and and large investments from from companies in that in that space is there anything out there that you see as being like just potentially game changing that can make logistics more efficient or cheaper or better or what what are what are you seeing companies doing either on the trucking side or actual you know companies retailers or or district distributors um is there anything that catches your eye that gets you excited you know here's the here's the challenge with logistics tech is that the the type of inf- this is all physical movement of goods. So take a take financial transactions and and you have everything from sort of the speculative side, which is like cryptocurrencies, all the way to sort of like fundamental how people make payments. There's companies like Stripe, Venmo, that that type of world to like how you trade stocks. Some of it is highly transformative technology. Some of it is just changed business models, sort of Robinhood yeah. in terms of changing yeah. business models. The reality is those things are very easy for people to grasp because they're quite, they can be quite transformative really quickly because you're just changing the way money moves or how people make payments or, or what they do in their lives. When we talk physical goods and supply chains, the improvements oftentimes are analog. And what I mean by that is, is that I have, I have this physically uh, conceptual item and I'm trying to improve it to go through my supply chain, which means it has to be touched by one or more parties, and I have to improve upon those workflows. And so a lot of what you see, and a lot of it's very boring stuff because you're like, man, I can't believe that that you can't track every piece of freight that comes from China's factories all the way to the U.S. today. Like a technology, the technology could exist, but you've got thousands of individual companies right. that may touch an individual item. Like the camera that I'm looking at right now probably has at least a hundred different companies that at some level were involved in the assembly of that and production of that product and distribution. So I've got a lens manufacturer. I've got the glass manufacturer that made the lens. I've got the chip manufacturer that made the chips. I've got the paint manufacturer that made the paint that goes into the plastic that then assembles it so forth and so on. And we go, 
there are hundreds of individual companies. And in order to have digitization, I have to, in, I have to get all of those companies to be a part of the same framework. That is the technology that's the most transformative, but it's quite boring for people outside of it because it seems, seems like a lot of work and it is. And it feels like it's so like, it's not as cool as robotic autonomous <laughs> trucks. Let's go there. Right. right? Like let's add driverless right. trucks. But the stuff that's real transformative is the stuff that you and your audience may consider not as sexy. Well, I mean, look at the container. Visibility. I mean, the actual container that we use, containerizing goods and being able to, to transport them in containers is probably one of the most fundamentally important things created for our modern economy. And it's it is. not sexy it at is. all. It's Arguably. not sexy at all, but it's incredible. No, it's a box. It's a yeah, metal it's a box. box that just happens, to, you know, and it was created. If you look at the cost of shipping something globally, it's something like drop like 97, yeah. like it's like 2% of what it used to cost. And because right. what used to happen is people would put freight in bulk on these ships and then they would have to hand load them, uh, offload them. So take like 10 days to offload a ship where now we're talking you know, maybe a half day or, or even in some cases, ship can come in in a couple hours, a couple of boxes can be moved and it can be moved on its way. And so yeah. the world has changed because of these logistics technologies that were driven by capitalism and American sort of orientation of global markets. And the, that is a very transformative technology. And I think when you look at what's happening now that's going to transform the way logistics and supply chains work is it's, it's now digitizing the information services and the payment services that go in to make those things possible. We're not yet at a point where autonomous trucks or, uh, uh, you know, are, are going to be a core piece of the supply chain uh, uh, ecosystem, nor are we at a point where electric semi-trucks or electric vehicles are going to actually be even a factor. Yeah, maybe so one day. Think about but, diesel. Yeah, we think yeah. about diesel, and so you're a you're an Elon Musk you, you, you're a fan. I am. You, I, I am. You mentioned. I so you go back to 2017. He promised the, the the semi, the Tesla semi, and he said by the end of 2022, we'd have a hundred thousand of these in terms of production. There's less than twenty, and it's not. Right. I'm not faulting Elon Musk. I think a lot of that was just a lot of we'll call it a little bit of naivety changing market dynamics with with how the market works in automobiles and how transformative tesla has been for the consumer automobile along with supply chains and the heavy duty truck manufacturing and really truck manufacturers are aren't really buying the, the tesla semis is a very sexy truck but the decision for a company buying a semi truck is about operating performance and making sure that they they have the infrastructure to support that truck operated the mission, right. less so about um, uh, about I want to have the Tesla car because it's cool and sexy and yeah and never very, never trust Elon's timelines <laughs> never, you can't never. and look I, it was remarkable because we were a lot of the trade press was sort of fawning over the electric semi and I think we were a little less uh, enthusiastic and almost a little hard on him. Simply because we said this is impractical as a choice. Electric over-the-road truck is an impractical choice. And so that technology in itself would be sexy. Autonomous trucks will be sexy. And there are robotics and warehouses and you see yeah. robotics automation. It's not stuff that anyone would be, you know, when I go out and I'm at a cocktail 
party or whatever, and people want to talk about technology innovation, they don't want to hear about visibility systems that take data. Like, it seems very archaic and boring. Now, if you show them a visual dashboard of like all this stuff moving, it looks cool. It looks like a command center. But when you tell them, hey, this is the projects they're working on, their sort of eyes glaze over. It sounds really boring. So the stuff that's really sort of captivating in terms of like sci-fi sort of bleeding edge, we're far out of that. We just need to get we need to figure out where all the freight is first. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm in and probably infrastructure as well. I mean, and yeah, I don't necessarily I mean, you know, mean building all new stuff. I mean making sure what we have works. Well, you got to have the ports operate. You know, there's still a lot of humans involved in that. Some of the ports around the world are far more advanced than ours. And it's because our labor, you know, U.S. labor, uh, the unions sort of have a lock hold, regulations sort of choke hold. There's just so much stuff that we could be doing better as a society in terms of infrastructure that we're not. We've largely ignored it. And And a lot of it's because we've outsourced all of this to around the world. And we've enjoyed remarkably great prosperity not just for ourselves, but even more so for the rest of the world. And I think something to be said for, you know, helping to eradicate so much of the poverty around the world through American capitalism. But now we're in a world that isn't operating the way it used to operate. And I think we have to some tough choices to make about, are we going to make the investments in infrastructure we need to make? Are we going to continue to advance technology? But what are we going to do in the interim before we're on electric autonomous vehicles how do we solve these issues that we continue to face? Um, are companies going to have more inventory or are they going to source goods in the United States? They're going to produce their goods in the U.S. Is it going to be weather tech for mattresses is the like our greatest uh, manufacturer? Uh, <laughs> or are we going to actually produce true hard goods in the U.S.? And these are decisions that are going to shape yeah. things. My guess or my estimate is, yes, some of that will happen. A lot of it will happen. We'll see domestic manufacturing come back. But that means you need railroads and you need ports and you need investment in highways. Well, and I Um, like your Mexico comment earlier. I think that's something to keep an eye on is that Mexico may be the biggest beneficiary of of everything happening right now. Absolutely. It it, it will be because it costs less to produce in China. It doesn't have – the the cost of transportation is sort of right. gone and you don't have this unpredictable autocratic regime. Now the, the common sort of people always bring up the cartels and that's a real issue that you have to contend with when you're doing business in Mexico. Um, you know, American manufacturers are in Mexico. It's a vibrant economy and they've sort of learned to live with it. And I always remind people that if you run a cartel, you need transportation networks not to bring in the carpet or the automobile, but you need to bring in your cocaine. <laughs> and you got to right. have those trucks go across the borders. Not deli- You can't declare the cocaine at the border. You have to no. declare your carpet. And so in some ways, yes, there is a reality that the cartels have an enormous amount of issue. They create an enormous amount of issue in terms of, of the ability to build a vibrant Mexican manufacturing supply chain. But I think those things will be easier. It will be much easier in the future to deal with the cartel situation than to deal with the Chinese government. And I think we as Americans just have to sort of soak it up and deal with it versus trying to to continue to sort of face this reality that you know China really has a lot of power that I think we should be uncomfortable with because they don't use it in a way that the market would want it to be used. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree with everything you just said there. Um, I know we're getting a little short on time and I know you're incredibly busy right about now. So uh, I kind of want to shift to the, the closing questions and uh, going doing a total, total left-hand turn here. But um, I always ask two questions to every guest. And the first one, Craig, is what does wealth mean to you? So, you know, wealth is different than, than sort of like what's in your bank account or what's in your, your financial. I think wealth is having basically all parts of your life satisfied. So I know people who make $40,000 a year and are completely, you know, true household income and are content with that kind of life. They don't require much. They don't have a lot of demands. They don't consume a lot. To them, they can have a very wealthy life. They pay their bills. They live perfectly fine in, in the role. Then you have other people who make millions of dollars and sort of are always stressed about money. And they don't, they're sacrificing the time with their family and they're pursuing careers that they're not passionate about. That isn't wealth to me. That's not, I think wealth is about freedom and having wealth is about being free and being able to do what you want to do and gives you value and satisfaction. And, you know, it's interesting because in my space, uh, freight, Freight waves, you know, we're a venture back company, successful, but there are companies that have that you know started at the same stage that are that have you know in terms of valuation metrics are growing much faster in terms of valuation. Their businesses, in the mind of a venture investor, may be a bit sexier than say a media and data business. But if you look at the amount of what I what I am certainly appreciative is, I get to do the thing that I love is be able to sort of sit back and monitor and watch these things and articulate them and provide sort of thought leadership. To me, I get a lot of value of that and learn. I'm a constant learner. So I would much rather have a business where I get to be a student at what's happening than be in a business where my valuation and my wealth and my personal net worth may be going up, but the satisfaction I get in my life is less. And so I think wealth is just about being able to do the things you want to do on the terms that you want them and not be held hostage by, by not having enough money or having enough satisfaction in your life. Yeah. And I can tell you love what you do. I can tell you get excited and you, you, you know, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on because I wanted someone who wasn't just going to be able to spit out the the data. Like that's fine. That's, that's important. But um, you know, I listened to you talk, talk on some other podcasts and some other things. And uh, I, I just felt like this guy's energetic about this. He, he understands what's happening and he's able to kind of convey that in a way that, that really just makes sense. So, so definitely I can I, appreciate that part of it. I, I no, I, and, and I really appreciate you saying that. I mean, I'm passionate about this. This is, you know, it's an interesting time. I, I grew up in this business. So my dad was a, ran a trucking company and my uncle ran a trucking company. So I grew up learning this. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of this boring, you know, for most people, it was sort of this boring topic of like trucks. Like it's like dirty diesel and, you know, uh, uh, it just wasn't interesting as what most people thought of. And I grew up learning it. And now the world's shifting so quickly it that it, it's interesting how what – I grew up learning that was important to me is now important to other people. And I think that's an opportunity. And I look, this is it not is, as yeah. if I have all the answers. I I'm, I am, a, I'm as interested in this topic as anybody and I'm learning about it as anybody. Uh, and so it, to me, it gives me the chance to have these conversations because I'm also gaining a lot from it. No, that's awesome. And, and, and the second question is what, if you could go back maybe to 
18, 20 years old, what advice would you, would you give yourself either on, on business, money, life, you know, what, what's something you've learned that you would, you would tell yourself? Look, I think the thing that I, when I go to talk to college students about whether it's building a business or starting a career is I think the two most important decisions you'll make in life is who do you network with and how do you network? And so the things that you oftentimes don't learn in the classroom is how important that networking is. So building relationships with people that can be rewarding and mutually rewarding for both parties, I think is really important. And you'll find that throughout life, a lot of it is access and who you know and not what you know. And I've seen this in my own life where I built what I thought was a successful payments business, but I was sort of an outsider. So it was like nearly impossible to sort of get any level of scale or distribution versus in supply chain as sort of you know, I was born in this industry and my dad didn't put a dime in or make any calls on my behalf, but the access that just being a part of the family provided an enormous amount of access to me. And that's about having those relationships that people that I knew when I grew up, they may be my dad's friends, but they helped out. Those things are incredibly important. I think they're underappreciated. And the second thing I think is a young person, the most important decision they can make about is who their partners are in life, their spouse. So I think Sheryl Sandberg has a really, really, I think, profound quote, which is the most important financial decision you will make is who do you marry? And I think she's right because, you know, if you've anybody who's been and I've got a friend who's in sort of dealing with this relationship problem and it's just it's it's just it's a train wreck and they can't focus on anything but that because they're dealing with this. And anyone who's been through a divorce or a really harsh breakup can attest or a, a really dysfunctional relationship is that if you're going to go build a business or build wealth or do investments and be successful at it, you got to have the support of the person that that's going to be there because you they're like your only fan at times when times get rough and you want them in your court. And I think that's important. And that's something I didn't learn, you know, sort of superficial things when you're younger you know, yeah. she's hot and whatever, like matters. <laughs> if you get older, you're like, right. I got to deal with her. I got to like, I don't care how hot she is. I mean, the end of the day, I can't endorse that enough because you're absolutely right. Especially if you're trying to be an entrepreneur. Um, but, but really if you're just trying to be successful in anything, you have to have that support. Um, and, and I know people I've unfortunately witnessed it where, you know, they didn't have that support in their corner. In fact, they had it pull in the other direction and, and, and telling them no and not, you know, not to pursue different things um, that they were passionate about. And that, that and certainly creates problems. Well, it, it creates problems. And then you think about the is being a founder or an entrepreneur is that you're taking on a lot of risk and you're taking on the people around you. If you are the sole breadwinner or you're a primary breadwinner in the family, let's say in my case or, or in my wife's case is when I started FreightWave, she, she was against it, but she was supportive because we had just met like four months and she was going to move to Tennessee. And she was like, wait, I just quit my really high paying six figure job in New York city to move to Tennessee. And you are an unemployed dreamer <laughs> and it turned out to work out for us but i had to right. like i had to get her there the thing is that once she got comfortable with the idea that we were going to do this she was always in my court and i think yeah. there are times when you're building a business there's times we didn't have enough money for payroll and you know you're, you're having to explain that to your spouse hey i we can't we can't go out to eat because we don't have enough money today 
to go to that nice mill. We can't go on that vacation. We, we, my wife and I went on a honeymoon to Thailand. We flew coach the whole way, middle seats. Cause I found I had, I had frequent flyer miles, but I hadn't, I didn't have enough money for the, like the tickets <laughs> and we spent it all in the hotel. And, and so, but it was like, that's the, and these aren't like horrible sacrifices. These are first world problems for real, but like you need someone in your court to understand that if you're going to start a business, there's going to be a lot of sacrifices along the way is we have a lot of late nights and they, you got to have someone that sports it. I've seen the opposite. I've been in situations where it's been the opposite. So, yeah, no, I I, I totally agree. And I've got one more question just because I'm really curious because I know you're a private, private pilot. Um, What's the coolest flight you've ever, you've ever flown coolest route or like coolest thing you've seen from the air? You know, I love, I mean, there's so many sort of memories, but I would say the, the, the flight that I love is actually in Tennessee and it's, it's here in chat outside Chattanooga, but it, so I have an Icon, which is a an amphibian aircraft, and the amphibian aircraft means it can fly in water, it can land on water, and it can land on land. It's sort of what's what amphibian means. And um, what's nice about it is you can land it on the river. So there's this river in Tennessee called the what's the Tennessee River, and it cuts through this mountain gorge. This really gorgeous sort of canyon, sort of looks like the horseshoe uh, that you see out west, except it's this one it has trees. It's a little bit uh-huh. bigger. And I love to just fly it, you know, 100, 200 feet above the water. That's cool. Sometimes a little Very bit lower. Cool. Get right in there, what they call ground effect, which is about 10 foot off the water. Just the, and, and what happens is the plane loses all of its air resistance, so it goes faster. And I get it right there, just accelerate the engine and fly. And to me, that's, that's awesome. as close to being an Air Force pilot. Like, what's great about it is that you can fly like that. And because you have a runway right below you, if something goes wrong, it's, it's a fairly, it's a much safer than if you did it over land. So no, that's very cool. I was in the air force and, and, uh, was too blind for them to let me fly. So that was unfortunate, but, but that's really cool. I think that's it uh, for me. Do you have any closing thoughts and, and please share with the listeners where they can find you and find out more about freight waves? So the best place to find me is is where I live is on Twitter. You can find me at Freight Alley, uh, and and look, I if you have supply chain questions, or logistics questions, I'm happy to answer them and 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 do that pretty frequently. Uh, and then FreightWaves, FreightWaves.com. Uh, you know, we produce fifty to hundred new articles per day, written by original journalists, and bringing context to this really crazy world that we're in of supply chains and geopolitical issues and energy and all this fun stuff. So if you're interested in those topics and the physical economy, then uh, we're your spot. And, and I can confirm Craig's a great follow on Twitter. I, I, I've truly learned a lot just from from following your posts and seeing some of the data and, and then you putting that data maybe in a little bit more context so I can actually learn something from it. So very good. And it was truly a pleasure. I learned a ton and we got into some some interesting topics there. So it'll be interesting to see how the how the next six months or so play out. But I suspect you're going to be a busy man uh, here for a while. <laughs> Usually if I'm busy, it's not necessarily a good thing. But well, anyway. that's true. That's so, true. So let's hope, well, let's, let's hope for world peace and, and stability. <laughs> so. I hope you're not busy this summer. So. Yeah. Right. Now, thanks a lot, Craig. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thanks, James. Well, there is certainly a lot to digest from that conversation. And of course, things can always change in a hurry. Thank you so much for listening. And please help me out by sharing the show with someone you think will find it interesting and leave a review on the listening platform of your choice. 
until next time. Cheers. <laughs>